There we are. The, uh, the posture of the teacher in the ancient world was to sit. Did you know that? So uh, I come from the ancient world. Wow. <laughs> I turned 60 about a month and a half, two months ago. And I pulled into the parking lot tonight and I turned right and it said reserved for 60 plus. That's, that's me. So I, that's where I parked. I'm the only car, I think, in that whole section there. Uh, it's been a joy to be with the TMS students on Tuesday nights this semester and to get to know a lot of you here. Um, and it's just been some great people here. And to my friend James, thank you for inviting me tonight, uh, this old guy who is rather an introvert and a bookish person. So, you know, when I'm worshiping with you here, I tend to sit quietly. That's just my style. Uh, tonight, I'm going to teach on the first five verses of Romans chapter five. Um, I applaud you for taking this, this tour of Romans for 16 weeks. Um, I have, I believe in slow reading. So I've actually taught courses on reading. Uh, <laughs> I read books about books. That's how nerdy I am. But I've taught uh, courses on reading. And sometimes I'll read a book in a few days. Sometimes I'll read a book in, in a few weeks. Uh, but I have one book that I've been working through for this whole year. It's a big, fat thing. And uh, I call it a slow read. You know, that kind of thing where it sits by my chair where I, I pray and I read the scriptures in the morning and I read. Uh, and, uh, and this book just sits there and I pick it up and I read another piece of it. And it's one of those things where it has a slow simmer, right? You get something and then you carry it with you. It's not about a data download or something. It's about receiving something that you can carry and walk around with. And so I think a slow read, like reading Romans over 16 weeks with this community, is a really, really good thing to do. So I became a pastor 37 years ago um, in September of 82. Is that? That's coming up 37 years. And I became a serious student 35 years ago. Did you hear what I said there? <laughs> I, I spent two years as a youth pastor I'd been a phys ed major. That had been my, my first stint in university. Well, it's a good preparation for youth ministry, I guess. You know, that's probably good preparation. And so I'd been so active and busy and running around and, and running three groups on three different nights uh, at Agent Court Pentecostal Church in Toronto. So active. And I came to this sense of being, I felt I was empty of substance, I was doing a lot. I was creating a lot of activity. And I, I didn't know by what authority I could talk. I was organizing activity after activity. God had my heart, no doubt. There was no doubt that I had had this sense of experience of the Holy Spirit and the call of God. God had my heart, but I had a rather limp brain. I hadn't been developed yet. And so I went back to school. And there... I came to believe. I remember sitting by the window at the table in the library of Trinity Western University, the old library, and opening this book and beginning to read. And it was like I was so hungry, I started to just consume truth. And, you know, I've come to this real opinion that thinking is foundational to faith. And so I'm going to talk about 
some of that just for a minute. You know, the word for repentance, metanoia in the Greek, literally means to change your mind. So thinking is vital to the life of faith. And I want you to realize that. So I gave this quote uh, a few weeks ago, this quote from St. Augustine. We'll put it on the screen. Uh, Do you see it there? I can't see what you see. There it is. Um, No one believes anything, said St. Augustine, unless one first thought it believable. Everything that is believed is believed after being preceded by thought. Not everyone who thinks believes, since many think in order not to believe, but everyone who believes thinks, since or thinks in believing and believes in thinking. Got that? <laughs> I'm going to leave it up there and you can look at it for a while. Part of a good study in something like the book of Romans for 16 weeks is going to test your skill in thinking and analyzing and considering. There's no way you can do this without having some kind of energy being spent in what does this mean and how does this fit into the flow of the argument? Where is this coming from and where is this going? You've got to do that. After all, you know this, God gave us a book. And the book is filled with powerful thoughts and images and language And it's important for us to think through it. So what do we mean by the word believe then? Often we equate it with the word faith, saying, I believe in God or I believe in Jesus. So as to think that believing and having faith are the same thing. They're they're similar. They, They operate in a similar world, but they're not the same thing. If I say I believe in X, I'm saying maybe that I believe X is true, right? That could be one use of the word believe. There's a country, I believe, called Lithuania. I've never been there. I believe it exists. It, its existence really doesn't impact me. If you're a Lithuanian, I'm really sorry for this example. But the fact that it exists, and I believe that it exists, really doesn't impact my personal life somehow. But I can use believe in a different way. If I say I believe in someone especially... If I say I believe in my wife, Susan, who is my rock of stability, and we've been married for 35 years, which is just our anniversary, just a, a week ago, um, then I'm saying something about personal trust and dependence. So I'm using belief in a different way. Uh, faith is more like that use of the word belief. Belief is then like faith in that it can have this sense of personal dependence Or not simply believing that something is true, but depending on it being true and living as if it were true. Faith is more than belief, but it's not less than belief. And belief is more than thinking, but it's not less than thinking. And so our beliefs have to be connected, as Augustine says here on the screen, have to be connected to our thoughts. And as your pastor, James, says, we're going to read Romans. He's saying, we need to have our thoughts grounded in the very ground of God's goodness and his salvation. We need to have our faith grounded in belief that is properly grounded in truth and good thoughts. So it's important. This is what Augustine is saying here, that linking belief with thinking. And that should be obvious, but it really has become a problem in today's world. If someone says they're a believer... They're a believer in God. Someone will reply something like, well, 
You say you believe it, but you really don't have any good thinking to back that up. There's just kind of a leap of faith there. And I have numerous conversations and have had numerous conversations in my life as a pastor. This is one of the most common repeating conversations that I've had in my whole life of 37 years as a pastor. Number one is about forgiveness. How do I forgive? But number two is, what do I think about this piece of my faith? (laughs) How do I sort these? Something new has crashed into the world of faith and it's upset everything. So this is what I say. I have an enduring faith. I've been a person of faith since a child. But I can tell you this. A lot of the pieces of belief have been reordered. (laughs) A lot of the pieces of belief have changed and been reordered. And as to my thoughts, oh my goodness, they're coming and going all the time. But I'm continually sowing my thought life with things that matter. So that's the, that's the relationship between thinking. So think about it. Thinking is the ground of belief and belief is the ground of faith. Faith is grounded in beliefs and beliefs are grounded in thoughts. Sow your thoughts with good things. Let the word of God dwell in you richly, says the scripture itself. So now let me shift to a complimentary idea. I'm going to talk about, since I am the professor here, The objective and the subjective. Have you ever heard these terms? So you're going to get a little lesson tonight. Okay, the objective and the subjective. A very important understanding because this is part of what's going on in the flow of the book of Romans. Okay? The objective is to talk about something that is true and real, whether or not I know it, whether or not I experience it, Whether or not I believe it. If something is objective, it's there. Whether or not I think anything about it or whether or not I know it. Okay? It's objectively true. It's real in spite of me. Get it? That's the objective. So, Hawaii has beautiful beaches. (laughs) Let's say that's an objective fact. And in my life, it was objectively true, although I never experienced it until, you know, some years ago when Susan and I went. This clear, warm water, right? The beautiful white sand. How many have been to Hawaii? How many have not been to Hawaii? How many believe that Hawaii exists? Okay. And if you just believe that it exists, it's an objective truth, but you have no personal experience of it. So here's the subjective then. The subjective starts with me or the I, okay? Maybe I could say, in terms of theology, God is love. And that would be the objective. The subjective would would be, and I have experience, I know God's love. That's the objective. Starts with the I, starts with the me. Something personally known or experienced for which I have some perspective on, okay? That I can say that I know something about, me, myself. So now if I say Hawaii has beautiful beaches, now for me, it's not simply objectively true, but I have, I have laid on the beach in Hawaii. And I think heaven is a beach, Uh, It's just the most glorious experience of the water and the sand, the whole thing. And I know that. So 
This is important to understand the difference between the objective and the subjective. And if I could put it this way, Romans grounds us in the objective truths of God. And now what's going to happen now as we move into our text, it's going to call us to subjective experience of it all. Okay? The objective truths of God, God is real. (laughs) This is the Jewish Christian tradition. How does the Bible start? In the beginning, God doesn't explain it, doesn't argue for it. That's where we start. That's the big assumption. That's, that's, the, that's the number one truth. God is. And as Roman proceeds, as Romans proceeds, it gives us another objective truth. The objective truth of Romans chapter one and two and into chapter three is that we are all participants in an active rebellion against the God who is. The whole human race has participated in a great rebellion against God. Now, objectively, that's so important to understand because the world does not make sense unless you understand the presence of sin as a power. Sin is a power that explains so much of what is going on. When you say, I don't understand, you should answer that question with, it's sin. That's why you don't understand. I, 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 as a young pastor, I'd been a church planter and we had a major upheaval in the church that I planted where our, our youth pastor had had a moral failing. And I remember how everything was thrown into chaos and I felt the need to understand sin. And I got a couple of big theological tomes to read. And in one of them, page nine, <laughs> I remember this so well. In Ted Peters' book, Radical Evil and Soul and Society, it says this. One thing has become clear in this study of sin. That sin is not clear. Nor can it be because of the lie. That's what, this, that's what the theologian says. Sin is this morass of confusion and of darkness fed by the lie. Romans says, objectively, there's something wrong with the world. Objectively. You're going to crash into it at times. You're going to experience dislocation and confusion in your life. You're meeting up with that dark force, that anti-God force, that rebellion that infects each of our own heart. So objectively, Romans says something's wrong. Here's the third real thing, the objective thing. God in his love has done something about that. (laughs) Jesus is not merely an example or a teacher or a leader But he is a sacrifice. And Jesus stands in the middle of history and says to God, it's all on me. Put the shame, put the blame on me. And the death of Jesus on his cross is God's real, objective answer to the problem of sin. Whether we know it or not, whether you believe it or not, I like to think of the cross as God's sword. It looks kind of like a sword, right? With a handle. God's sword planted in the earth like that. God's scalpel to cut out the disease of sin. So objectively, God has done something for us through Christ. But what Paul does now as he's working through the argument is it starts to shift, right? Because what you've been hearing in the study of Romans so far is it's about faith. It's about connecting From the personal side, from the subjective side to the God who has done something objectively true for us. 
So now we step in. We are meant to step into this grace, step into this truth, step into this objective operation of God on the human situation. And Paul is concerned that we have a real experience of this. So this is where we come to now then, Romans chapter 5. And for the remainder, I'm going to talk about Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. That's our study tonight. And I said to your pastor, James, I call this a meatloaf sermon. This is just meat and potatoes. But how many like meatloaf? I love meatloaf. Meatloaf, mashed potatoes with a little butter on it and some pepper and some peas. Yes, yes. That's what makes it good. So here's the text. Pastor James can be wrong. That's okay. This is a safe place. Okay, Romans 5. Here's the text. Is it on the screen? Just, just on it. Yes, it is. Uh, here it is. Therefore. And anytime you see the word therefore, you should ask what it's there for. This is a transition. Romans 1 to 4 is now transitioning to Romans 5 to 8. And you're going to hear two talks in this next part of Romans on life in the spirit. This first one and another one that's coming in Romans 8. Paul is transitioning. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. There's a theology course right there. So here's the three things I'm going to talk to you now about. Peace, we have peace with God. Hope, we boast in hope. Isn't that an interesting piece there? We're going to come back to that. And love, God's love has been poured out into our hearts. So let me take them one by one for the balance of our time. So peace, hope, love. As the subjective, meaning this is how we interact with the objective operation of God for us. Get it? God has done something objectively. Now I need to step into it. And this is the beautiful part. When the objective and the subjective come together, when the objectively real meets with you and I as persons who encounter that truth subjectively from the position of my own perspective and experience, that's a beautiful place to be. Okay, first, we have peace with God. Turn to your friend and say, peace, bro. Do you guys take communion here? You do? What's that? In prayer? Someday, I've got to talk to you, James, after. We need to have a communion service here. Communion is... Communion is the center of Christian worship, and it has been for 2,000 years. Sorry if I'm stepping on toes. I'm just a guest. (laughs) And one of the beautiful actions at the communion meal, because communion is about reconciliation, it's the, you know what, you don't have supper with your enemies, do you? (laughs) 
You have supper with your friends. In fact, you know there's a hierarchy of meals. Let's have a coffee is the starting position. Let's have lunch. That moves it up one. Let's have supper. That's amazing. Right? And Jesus invites us to supper. And in the Anglican, the liturgical services, there's always after the taking of communion, the sharing of the peace. And you just turn to your neighbor and you say, the peace of Christ be with you. It's a beautiful, beautiful action of community. So if in fact, something objectively real has happened in the universe, if the Prince of Peace has in fact invaded a hostile world to establish the peace of God. And the angels sang it, didn't they, on Christmas night? Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace. Peace, bro. Right? Peace on earth. So where is the war? It's not on God's side. Is it? Is it? Is the war on God's side? It's in our side. The war, God has made peace with us and offered it to us through his son. If there still is a war, it's in our minds and hearts. God has established peace. One of my favorite illustrations of this is is at the end of World War II, we're told that there was enough of the Japanese army, and it was probably in the hundreds, that disappeared into jungles in Southeast Asia and the Philippines and Guam, various places, and hid out at the end. The army had been dispersed. You know how war can be chaotic. So there were soldiers, and it, it windled down from the, from the hundreds to the tens and then just to the few over the years. But there were these soldiers hiding after the war was over. <laughs> and so there are stories told about, about these guys who were hiding. One the story of a, of a man who hid out in a cave in Guam for 28 years. 28 years in a cave after the war's over. Think about that. The war's done. The war finished. When did World War II end? Anybody know? 1945. And he hid there till 1973. 28 years. And he lived on rats. and snails, and shrimp. That ain't so bad. <laughs> Whatever he could find. And he made his clothes out of tree, tree leaves and sort of like a burlap type of feeling. And this man lit, hid in fear for 28 years after the war was over. And, and finally, some hunters came along and they found him and they persuaded him, it's over, man, it's over. What are you hiding for? And they, they coaxed him out of hiding and he was brought back to Japan. And he said, I knew it was over. I, I heard or I, I received the leaflets that had been falling out of the sky or the planes dropped the leaflets saying the war has come over, come out of hiding. It's all over, come home. He said, I knew it was over. I just was afraid. The war is over. God has pronounced peace. I love the story of the man who got a flat tire in the country late at night and he realized he didn't have a jack in the car and he saw a light at a farmhouse over about a mile down the road. So he thought, I'm, I guess I'll go over there and knock on the door and see if I can borrow a jack and, and 
fix my, fix my car. So he started to walk and he, as he walked, he started to talk to himself. It's really late. They're probably in bed. They might get a little angry. <laughs> the farmer's probably going to really be angry at me. Yeah, but what option do I have? I would do it for someone if, if they were asking me, what are they all upset for? And he said that as he walked and he talked to himself, well, excuse me, sorry for bothering you. Sheesh, grumpy farmers. He finally got to the door and he knocked on the door and the farmer opened the door and the man said, you can keep your old Jack. What had what he been doing? Carrying on this argument with himself, right? Carrying on the war within his own mind. Here's what God says to us. Hey, I already said peace. I already said peace. Second, we boast in hope. It's a strange term, we boast in hope. In some ways, that seems like a a strange way of putting things, to boast in hope. The word actually is ambiguous in the Greek. It can also mean we rejoice in hope. Some of your translations will say we rejoice in hope. But really the best option here, translators looking at the word kalkamai is the Greek word, boast. How can we say we boast in hope? I, I think we can understand it this way. We take as the center of our identity, our deepest sense of self, that our future destiny is glory. We boast in the hope of the glory of God, it says. We take as the centerpiece of our identity that our future is one that is absolutely glorious. Now, how do you understand that? I mean, how do you understand that in terms of the gospel? Because we already said the first thing is that mankind is in rebellion against God and that God has answered that through the sacrifice of Jesus. So what is it now that we're talking about the boast of glory? What has happened here? It's almost like you were driving down the Deerfoot and you saw the lights in your rearview mirror, the cop with his lights on, and you said, oh my goodness, and you pulled over. And you were sitting there all worried and sort of, you know, upset. And you rolled down the window as the cop came up to the side of your car. And he said, I just wanted to give you this $100 bill. (laughs) And he said, what? (laughs) That's a twist. In fact, I think maybe they should do that once in a while. Give a little back, you know. (laughs) It will never happen. So here's the amazing thing. We were enemies of God and God has solved our problem of hostility. And now Paul is saying, and now there's an absolute flip that we are boasting in the glory of our future, in the hope of the glory of God. Have you ever tasted a little bit of glory? I, I was a college basketball player back mm, too long ago. 50 pounds ago, 50 pounds ago, 40 years ago. I, in my younger days, I played NCAA Division I, believe it or not, 
Oral Roberts University back in 7980. And uh, I, w- I made the team as a walk-on and then earned a, a scholarship. And, uh, but the thing for me was I was the last player on the team. So I would only get on the floor if we were 25 points up or 25 points down. That was kind of the way it worked for me. So it was kind of a joke, you know, if we're 25 points up or 25 points down, you can hear the people in the stands cheering, we want Boz, we want Boz. Oh, yeah, the game's over. Put Boz on, right? So I got in seven games that year. And in one game, I got a rebound at our own end. And I was fouled. And we were on the bonus situation. So I get two free throws. So I walk from that end all the way down to this end to take the free throws, which just happens to be where the student section is. About three or 4,000 students at that end. 10,000 people in this arena. Three or 4,000 students at that end. So I'm walking down to take my free throws and the student section rises to cheer for little old me, the last player on the team. And I walk, I couldn't feel my arms. I'm gonna, you know, shoot these free throws. I mean, I'm, it's like an out-of-body experience. Have you ever had people standing cheering for you? It's an amazing, you, you, you realize how you can get addicted to that. You really realize how that can happen. And so I couldn't, I, could, I remember I, I just, I felt numb. But somehow out of muscle memory, I sunk these two free throws, swish, swish. Everybody cheered. The game was over and I receded into oblivion. <laughs> that was it. Not a big deal. But I tasted what it felt like to experience Glory. For just a little moment. The pure feeling of it. It's intoxicating. But the boast is hollow here. Because it can't last. And it's not that important. None of you knew about my extraordinary feat. Of sinking two free throws. In a college game in 1980. Did you know that James? You didn't know it. No. Nobody knew about it. It wasn't that important. It's only a little taste of what we long for. To do something. To be something, to live for something that matters, that has weightiness to it. And here's where Paul makes this interesting turn. Now look at what he says next in the same point. Not only so do we boast in the hope of the glory of God, but we also glory in our sufferings. Do you see it on the screen? Is it coming up? Oh my goodness. We glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope. Not only do we boast in our future, says Paul, but we also glory in our sufferings. We do. We do. Be careful what you think glory is. It's not the flashy. It's not the trendy. It's not the popular. It's not the widely applauded. I just said it. The biblical word for glory, both in the Greek and the Hebrew, has this attached sense of weightiness. Kabod in the Hebrew has the sense of substance. So if you want to talk about the glory of God, we're saying that he is the most real, the most substantial. The one who most matters. And so look at what Paul is doing for us. He's drawing out a progression. Suffering produces perseverance. You can see that. That could be true, right? Suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. I can see how that's true. 
But this last piece, character produces hope. I was, I was really musing on that last week as I was getting ready to share this with you. It's probably see, easy to see how the first two things happen. That suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character. But how in the world does character produce hope? And I was thinking about that. And then I entered into a conversation with someone. And I do that all the time as a spiritual director. They had recently been going through a series of challenges. And we could say sufferings. An illness. Some problems at work. Just life crashing in on them. But they had and they are fully committed to Jesus. And I asked them, how would you have responded to those challenges in the past? And they said, I would have taken drugs or I would have got drunk. And I said, but you've changed, haven't you? You have some perseverance in you now, don't you? Which means you have more character, don't you? Which means that God is developing you on the inside. And he said, yes, absolutely, yes. I can see how these Hard times have been producing perseverance and character. And I said, and that feels a little bit like hope, doesn't it? And he said, yes, I can feel that I'm changing. There's a hope that's growing up inside of me, even through the sufferings, because the suffering has been producing perseverance and perseverance has been producing character. And character is that thing within us that is the beginning of hope. Right? Hope doesn't just come from the outside in the future. Hope springs up from the inside as we say, God, you're doing something inside of me. Even through my sufferings, I know that I'm changing. I'm changing. And so we smiled and we cried and we shared a prayer. It felt like hope. And finally this, God's love has been poured out into our hearts. And this is what Paul says, Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? Poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And here's where we end tonight. Where Paul kind of sums up what we're talking about this move from an objective understanding to what God is doing to a subjective experience of God. What this finally feels like. When I said, this is my last point, it's still going to take probably five or six minutes. So I'm sorry about that. (laughs) Got to be careful what I say. You know, halfway through Philippians, Paul says, finally, brothers. (laughs) And then he goes on for two more chapters. What does it feel like to subjectively enter into this objective work of God? It feels kind of like a motor that's made to run that doesn't have any oil in it. And then the oil's poured in and the engine can run. Our hearts are empty spaces made for love. That's just whatever the mystery of a human person is. And I I study these things. What is the human self? And what what makes the human self grow and change? How, How does a person become what it's meant to become? I've come to this really firm conviction that it has something to do with love, the mystery of the human heart. We are spaces made for love. We run best on love. Like a quart of oil in the engine, love in the human heart. So what is the real experience of the Holy Spirit? It is the experience of the poured out love of God. I'm going to... 
I, my time is gone and the band has already come up. <laughs> but they're going to have to stand there embarrassed looking for a while. One little lesson in Pentecostal history. And you can go ahead and read about this. As the Holy Spirit was being outpoured in Azusa Street, 1906, the famous phenomenon of the Holy Spirit outpouring. There came a division as to what this meant. And you know, in Acts 2, in the sign of the gift of other languages, they say, what does this mean? That's the operative question. What does this mean? And they were asking the question at Azusa Street, what does this mean? William Seymour was was the man at the heart of the Azusa Street revival. He was the son of an ex-slave. He was a black man who grew up in an extremely segregated and divided world in 1900s, early 1900s. And you can imagine if it's hard right now in in the racial divide in America, it was extremely hard in those days. And God had chosen him to be the point person for this outpouring. And what did Seymour believe about the outpoured spirit? He said that the Outpoured spirit was the pouring out of the love of God upon the human heart. And the fruit of that would be the reconciliation of people. And in his day, there was no bigger divide than black and white. And he said, and and, and at Azusa Street, there were black and white people together in a time when that was impossible. And they were there together worshiping. So finally, I want to say, That is the sign of the poured out life of God upon us. The spirit of love. I could say more, but you know, that sound sounds like that I'm done. So, well, here's what I want to say. I'm really interested in writing on the sanity of Jesus. The sanity of Jesus. It comes to my attention that unloved and unloving people are not sound. They're always searching for something. They're troubled in heart because all it takes is for you to experience rejection or bitter disappointment. That sense of unlove and your mind reels with trouble. You are not sound. Jesus was the most sound and sane man who ever lived because he lived under the loving, continual love of the Father, and he could be himself. (laughs) Unlovingness and unlovedness relates to a troubled mind. But love and sanity go together in the same way. And so I believe in the sanity of Jesus. And I want to pray in my life for the sanity of Jesus. And I want to pray that for you, for the sanity of Jesus. That sense of groundedness that because the Holy Spirit is with you, you are loved and you can walk with favor, with what? Peace of God. (laughs) And what? The hope of a future. And the sense of the poured out love of God. That is the experience that you have come into the objective work of God. That your subjectivity has now been wrapped in the objective work of what God has done for you. And so I want to end with this, with a prayer. Let's pray. I want to pray for you and I want to pray for this community. And I'd like to pray for myself as well.
Jesus, our friend and master. What you have done for us is objectively real and true. You have taken on the shame and the penalty of sin and canceled its power over us. You have taken on the specter of death and buried it in the grave. And what you have done really happened in history was witnessed and proclaimed and written about. And we believe it to be true, objectively, concretely real. But our prayer tonight is that you would make real in our hearts this gospel we know about, but sometimes feel distant from. First, we ask for the peace of God to be genuinely experienced in our hearts. May we stop our arguments with you and listen long enough to hear you say you are for us and not against us. May we realize that we are destined for glory, which begins now as our very characters are being shaped into something substantial and real. Make us legit, God. And as the seal in all of this, pour out your love into our hearts. We cannot operate any other way. May we realize in ourselves the sanity of Jesus, that grounded sense of self that comes as we know we are loved and can love others. And this is a large prayer, Lord, but we ask it according to your word. May it be, may it be, amen.